But uh, we, we've been uh, looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke, and there is so much about grace in Luke. And hence, we've been uh, singing about it. And uh, we've talked about Zacchaeus, surprised by grace. Zacchaeus, the unexpected person that uh, Jesus went to dine with, certainly surprised by grace there. And then last week, we looked at the calling of Levi, a tax gatherer, and called not only to become a disciple, but called to follow Jesus, and eventually he became one of the twelve. And the human author of the first gospel, surprised by grace. Uh, Leslie B. Flynn wrote a book entitled, Man Ruined and Restored. Good title. Ruined and restored. And he tells the story of a world-famous violinist uh, who would never let a baggage man carry his costly Stradivarius, but he handled it himself for safety's sake. But one day on a crowded railroad platform, he was accidentally pushed into the path of a baggage truck. His precious violin lay smashed into dozens of pieces, seemingly beyond all repair. Blinded by tears, the violinist dropped to his knees to gather up the dozens of pieces, even the tiniest of fragments. He took them to the shop of an old violin maker who after, you know, after a couple of years, uh, he said it would take a couple of years at least to, to do this, but two years later, the violinist received his violin as good as new. A perfect violin had been carefully recreated out of those broken fragments. And like the most expensive violin, we are precious. We're made in God's image. And we're to be handled with care. But because of sin, we got broken. All of us broken because of sin. And God's grace is about restoring people from brokenness to wholeness. This last uh, week has uh, been an eventful one in different ways. Uh, good week, actually. But, um, but on Tuesday, it was my privilege to uh, get in on part of our pastor's retreat out at Gull Lake. And uh, in the you know, the conversations and the little huddle group that uh, we spend together. Uh, my friend uh, Eric Brooks from Strathcona Baptist Church, he expressed that they have a slogan that goes something like this that describes the function, what they want the function of their church to be, journeying together from brokenness to wholeness. Journeying together from brokenness to wholeness. I like that. I like it. It recognizes that the calling of the church, the calling of the church is about restoring people. I like the word together in there because we each carry our share of damage and we're all in process. And the together is significant because in the operation of restoring people from point A on to point Z and the whole thing in between, normally it's in the context of togetherness. 
that this restoration takes place. Well, that whole process, restoring from brokenness to wholeness, reflects the gospel of grace. Grace for us. Grace for us to pass on to others. I notice in the first couple of verses of the chapter that was read, first of all in verse 1, I notice who it was that especially were gathering around Jesus to hear him. That itself is unexpected. It was the, the ones that, you know, would have been a surprise that these um, tax collectors or these sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But then there was the response to that by the religious people, the Pharisees, it says, and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know, in their mind, they're expressing this. There's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> Not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is welcoming, even eating with such unclean, defiling people. This doesn't fit our standard of righteousness that we would want from our religious leaders. And how does Jesus respond? He tells these three parables that were read for us earlier. Parables, true-to-life stories, uh, telling a story to, uh, you know, to, to make his point, uh, something that is uh, reasonably true to life. And uh, the first one, and all, and all three, by the way, is about lostness, people being lost or something being lost and then being restored again. But the uh, first one is about uh, a sheep that wanders away and you're the shepherd. And uh, you lose the sheep, so what do you do? Well, you go and you look for the sheep. And uh, even to the point of, you know, being distracted away from those that are safe, the flock that is at home and safe and sound, you don't even think about them right then, but you're giving yourself totally to finding that sheep. And then when you find the lost sheep, you celebrate. You even celebrate with friends. Similarly, suppose that a woman of modest means loses a silver coin... Won't she put every effort into finding it? Even being distracted away and forgetting about the other nine coins that are not lost. And then when she finds it, she is so ecstatic that she can't keep it to herself. She's just got to call her friends to celebrate with her. But in both stories, the lost has been found and celebrated. That which has been found is celebrated. And Jesus makes the very same point for both. In verse 7 and then also in verse 10. In verse 7 he says, uh, in the same way, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then similarly in verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Saying that when a lost person, a sinner, turns away from a wrong, sinful kind of life, there is great celebration in heaven. Because more than anything, God wants lost people to be found, which in itself 
is an expression and a description of how much he loves all those people created in his image. And so when they are found, when they turn around, there is rejoicing in heaven. And then with that kind of a preface, he goes into another parable. And this one more personal, the story of the prodigal. And someone has suggested that this might well be the most famous story in the whole world. Just might be. Very catchy, very dramatic, hard to forget. And in this story, there are three characters. There's the younger son who gets lost. There's the father. And then there's the older brother. But uh, in the parable, in the story, Jesus tells that uh, this man had two sons. And uh, the younger one says, I want my inheritance right away. (laughs) I don't want to wait. I want it as soon as possible. And uh, so the father obliges and he divides the property between the two sons. But soon after that, this younger one liquidates his shares and he heads far off away. Now, in the minds of respectable first-century Jewish people, the behavior of this son would be considered disloyal and outrageous. But removed from the restraints of home, he soon squanders the whole wad in wild living till it's all gone, it's all been wasted, and doesn't take long before he begins to reap the consequences of having sown wild oats. I suggest one of the most uh, tragic teachings of Scripture is the one expressed in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 7. It it says, uh, God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. That's a tragedy. The law of the harvest. And that's exactly what's happening to him. He's beginning to reap the consequences. He doesn't have any money. A severe famine hits him in this faraway country. He becomes destitute. And then he finds a job. But uh, to make his point, Jesus uh, makes, you know, creates in his story the kind of job that would be about as low as a Jew could go. He's being with animals that the Jews consider unclean, feeding pigs. And that, if that isn't bad enough, uh, he gets hungry. Nobody feeds him. And those many friends that were only too glad to party with him when he had money <laughs> are not around anymore. And it says he becomes so hungry that he even, well, I'll put in my own words, even pig feed. Even pig slop becomes appetizing. But it's when he hits rock bottom that he begins to look up. And in his desperate state, the comforts of home, restrictions, restraints, notwithstanding, begin to look good. And for the first time, we see him thinking, some sense. He is saying to himself, I'd be so much better off at home even as a, I mean my servants, the servants back there are so much better off than I be, than I happen to be right now. And he's saying to himself, I'm going to go back. 
And there are many expressions here that show genuine uh, repentance. But I think an extremely uh, poignant one is in verse 17 where it says, He came to his senses. When he came to his senses. And that's when he's thinking thinking about this, how that he'd be so much better off just being a slave to his father. He experiences a reality check. He begins to see his life as it really is. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote that repentance is the ultimate honesty. Repentance is where you are completely honest with what is going on. Well, this honesty continues. Verse 18, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and against my home. It isn't just an unfortunate economic development and being caught in a recession, but he has sinned against heaven and home. And he doesn't blame God or his circumstances or other people. He takes full responsibility. This is part of that ultimate honesty and proper repentance. And so he's saying, I'm not even worthy anymore. I'm not even worthy to to even be considered a son of my father. He has no claim, and he can only ask to be given the position of a servant, a slave, in a household where he knows that even servants are well treated. But then it says in verse 20, he got up and went to his father. That is the deciding factor right here. And for any one of us, When we repent, all the good intentions in the world, all the regrets and all the feeling of sorry. Some people think of repentance as just being so sorry for all the things you've done. No, it's not about being sorry. It's about being sorry in a way that it leads you to take the step. And uh, all the regrets and feeling sorries don't count unless followed by making the commitment to turn fully to the Lord. And that's what he does here. (laughs) The deciding factor is he, he got up and he went for home, went to his father. So he begins to hike. You know, he had all that money at one time, call a taxi, call the limousine, whatever. No, but you know, that's not the way he's going to go home. He begins to hike. We have an expression in Norwegian that uh, goes something like this. There and back, same distance. However far he had gone, he had to cover the distance going back again. And so, that's what he does. He gets up and he heads for home. Now we come to the welcoming father. The lost son, but now the welcoming father. And of course, it's so significant that the father sees him. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's like the Father has been scanning the horizon daily since the sun left. And as he comes closer, ragged, tired, gaunt, the Father's heart is filled with compassion. And here you have an important difference in this story in contrast to the other two. You see, you can run after a sheep 
you can scoop it up and bring it home. And the same with a lost coin. You can go after it. You can look for it. And then you can take it home. But an adult son who chooses to be lost, you have to respect his choice. And so the father, it's not like he went to the distant country to try to find him, but he was scanning the horizon to see if, you know, praying, looking across the, field, across the fields as, as far as he could every day. But the moment that he sees his son coming, coming, coming closer, yes, it's him coming home, then he drops everything and runs to meet him. There was a missionary in Lebanon who uh, read this parable to a group of villagers who lived in a culture very similar to the one Jesus describes here, the, the culture here. And, uh, and so the missionary asked these locals, he says, uh, what do you notice about this? And there were two details that really stood out to the villagers. First, they said, by claiming his inheritance early, <clears throat> the son was in effect saying to his father, <clears throat> I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And the villagers could not imagine a patriarch <clears throat> taking such an insult or agreeing to the son's demand. Second, they noticed that the father ran to greet his long-lost son, saying that in the Middle East, a man of stature walks with slow and stately dignity. Never does he run. He was so ecstatic that he threw dignity to the winds. Well, let's not forget who he represents. He represents our Heavenly Father. Dignity thrown to the wind. That's how much he cares about the lost coming home. Well, the son has played this tape in his mind a million times by now. He's fully prepared to express remorse and to ask for mercy for the mercy of being a mere slave. But the father isn't even ready to listen to that. He just runs to him, he braces him, he kisses him before the son has a chance to say anything. Puts his arms around him. The embrace of fellowship, the kiss of forgiveness. And then the son expresses himself that I am not worthy. Oh, father, he says, have mercy on me, you know. Yeah, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father, he just says, quick. You know, he commands his servants. Bring the best kind of a robe. Bring a ring and bring sandals. The robe was a token of honor, an act of esteem, it was usually reserved for special guests. The ring was a badge of authority, a signet whose stamp carried the right to buy and sell in the father's name. And the shoes were a sign of wealth, and they set apart, they set the sun apart from the peasants and the slaves of the land who had to walk barefoot down the roads of Palestine. And that helps me understand that spiritual that you've probably often heard sung. It used to be sung in men's quartet. And it includes this line that all God's children got shoes. Well, in that culture, it really meant something to have shoes. He was no longer a slave, but he was a son. He was prepared 
to be a mere servant forever. But even as we started out this morning from the story about the violin, he was restored immediately as a son. Having been robed, having been given a ring, and having been given shoes, he is fully restored. And it's now time to announce a celebration. Everything else goes on hold. Kill the fatted calf. Today is all about celebration. Everything, you know, might be in the middle of the harvest, the middle of thrashing, or the middle of combining. Never mind. This is all about celebration because the lost has been found. You know, and if it wasn't a parable and it was a story about something that really happened historically, then maybe you would kind of expect that the father's reaction would be one of reluctance, right? I mean, let him knock on the door twice. Make him squirm. After all, he left us. Make sure that he has learned his lesson. (laughs) But you see, the lesson here isn't about bringing up children. The lesson here is a reflection of how God looks upon those who come back to him. How God looks at lost people coming home. He doesn't play hard to get. He's not a reluctant forgiver. He's not stingy with grace. He doesn't love on a quota. Rather, he longs for the opportunity to forgive. He scans the horizon to look for those who need to come home. And when they trudge towards him, he runs to meet them. For the welcoming Father is the welcoming God. I I think it's wonderful. I think it's intriguing. I think it is so meaningful that Jesus would tell a story that is so dramatic, so emotive, so warm, so expressive on unrestrained, unconditional love in order to highline this truth about God. How he loves, how he cares for any of his children created in his image who have gone into any kind of degradation and how he welcomes them. And to make the point so clear, and of course contrasts, you know, really help us sometimes to get the picture. To make the point so so clear, he paints a picture of the lost son doing the kind of thing that was the lowest kind of thing that he could be doing. The worst kind of thing, feeding pigs. Because this Stories especially told for these Pharisees and teachers of the law that complained about Jesus fellowshipping with those kind of people. Well, in his wonderful book, Philip Yancey, in the, the, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells about the famous author Ernest Hemingway, who committed suicide a number of years ago now, Uh, But he tells us that in one of his stories, a Spanish father decides to reconcile with his son who has run away to Madrid. Madrid. The father is now remorseful, and so he takes out an ad in the local paper, and uh, this is what the ad says. Peco, meet me at Hotel Montana. 
noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Well, Paco is a common name in Spain. And when <laughs> I heard that chuckle, yeah, that made, made me release myself too and chuckle. It's a common name in, 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 in Spain, so you can imagine what happened. He goes down to the, uh, to the town where he's uh, hoping to meet his son, and there are 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers. <laughs> but, you know, Yancey doesn't throw this in for nothing. The question being, I wonder why Ernest Hemingway created a story like that. He had devout parents, and they detested Hemingway's libertine life. And after a time, his mother refused to allow him in her presence. One year for his birthday, she mailed him a cake along with the gun his father had used to kill himself. Another year, she wrote him a letter complaining that a mother's life is like a bank. Every child that is born to her enters the world with a large and prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. The child makes a withdrawal, makes withdrawals, but not deposits during the early years. <clears throat> but then later, when the child grows up, it, it's his responsibility to replenish the supply he has drawn. <laughs> I can hardly wait till my, my three kids begin to put their deposit in, into, in, into our bank. <laughs> but uh, Hemingway's mother then then proceeded to spell out all the specific ways in which Ernest should be making deposits to keep the account in good standing. Flowers, fruit or candy, uh, paying off a mother's bills, and then above all, a determination to stop neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Yancey says that Hemingway never got over his hatred for his mother or for her Savior. How different was Hemingway's parents from the Father in Jesus' parable? But how that, you know, that story illustrates this other thing, how we all need, not only want, but how we all need that unconditional love from a father. And that is what Jesus is showing here in that parable. The warm, unconditional, unrestrained love of the Father. But then there was this third character. There was this older brother. This older brother. In verse 25, the older son was in the field. <laughs> Jesus paints a picture of him being dutiful, working and then he hears you know the celebration going on and he asks the servants around him what's going on and then then they explain to him your your brother who was lost has come home and your father has thrown a special celebration and uh you know um he doesn't like that and he complains to his father and he says you know all these years i have served you so faithfully and never never did anything against what you wanted and yet you never even uh, provided a goat for me that I could celebrate with, with your friends. But now when this son of yours, 
the scandal in the family comes home, why, you kill the fatted calf. He gets special attention. It's just not fair. But here's the, the, the real life understanding of that. Who do you love the most of your children? Uh, we love them all, of course, but I think we have a, a special love, maybe not extra love, but a certainly special care for the one that has a special need, you know? The one with a learning disability, perhaps. Or the one that's going through a divorce, or the one who has cancer, or the one who is a prodigal. So he says to his, his older son, he says, you were always here, you haven't lost, and you haven't lost anything. And what I have is yours. But your brother, he was lost, he was dead, and now that he's found, now that he's home and alive, we celebrate. But think for a moment of what it might have been like for this elder brother. Faithful, loyal, dependable, patiently fulfilling his responsibility to his father, and now the younger one, the scandal, returns. And there's a celebration. It's not fair. Well, who does this older brother personify in the story? I mean, why did Jesus throw this part in? Kind of spoil the story in a way. Why did he bother? Who does he represent? Well, I think you know the answer. The lost brother. He personifies all of those lost people, those tax collectors and those sinners that Jesus was fraternizing with in verse 1. And the Father, of course, in the story represents the way God welcomes sinners who turn to him. The elder brother, those at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. See, the older brother preferred law to grace. The Pharisees preferred law to grace. But I think the question for us, in the context of where we are today, both as individuals and as a church, do we like grace? Do we really like grace? Sometimes it just doesn't seem fair. A preacher by the name of Fred Craddock once tinkered with the details of the parable. And in a sermon, he had the father slip the ring and the robe on the elder brother and then kill the fatted calf in honor of his years of faithfulness and obedience. And a woman in the back of the sanctuary yelled out, that's the way it should have been written. And I'm sure she meant it. Remember the story of the laborers that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20? During the course of a day, the landowner hired a crew to work in his vineyard. He hired some at the beginning of the day, before the day's work started, and he agreed to pay them the going rate. One denarius for the whole day. But he needed some more men, so then he went out at different times in the day. He went out at 9, he went out at noon, he went out at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., just one hour before quitting time, he hired some more. 
And then at six, when it's time to go home, he pays all of them a full day's wages. All of them were paid what they were entitled to, but those who had not had opportunity to earn a full day's pay had grace added. Think about it. Those people who didn't get an opportunity to work until 5 p.m., they still had a wife and family at home. They still needed a day's wages. They had grace added to them. None of them were cheated. The ones who had worked for a day, they had a day's pay. And they did not become any poorer because of the grace given to others. But understandably, those who have worked all day complain, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And similarly, this elder brother, the one who had toiled faithfully all his adult life, feels shafted. Grace just isn't fair. But I wonder, could it be that when we want others to get only what they deserve, we haven't fully embraced grace in our own hearts, that it hasn't fully registered that for all our good conduct, it is only by grace that we stand before him. And that grace means we too are getting far more than we deserve. But since we are already getting more than we deserve, we certainly shouldn't complain about what others are getting. When they get, they seem to get too much. See, the elder had not been displaced. He had lost nothing. But he was counting. He was comparing. He wrongly presumed that a straight line, that there should be a straight line between his performance and the Father's love. But when we fully realize that it is by grace, we can only want the same for others. And so perhaps we need to grasp a little more fully that we too are here only by grace. Yancey has a note, he says, grace can't be calculated like a day's wages. Grace isn't about who finishes first or last. It is about not counting. Yeah, I agree. I think he's right. And so as I finish, I want to say again, and I keep saying it, but I'll keep on saying it, I suppose, that there is a pattern in the New Testament that as he blesses us, we are to pass on that blessing. As he loves us, we must love others. As he forgives us, we must forgive others. As he saves us by grace, we must treat others with grace. It's true individually. But at this time of the year, as we're thanking the Lord for the year past as a church, and as we're looking ahead to a year, it's true corporately. It's true corporately as a church. As we've been blessed, we bless others. You know, this story will forever be called the story of the prodigal son. But you know what? It's a misnomer. It isn't ultimately about the son. It's really about the father. The son is just a prop to help make the point of what God is like. A welcoming father. And as a church, we are to reflect 
what our Heavenly Father is like. And even as He has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, then we also, even as Strathcona Baptist Church is trying to, we too can be journeying together from brokenness to wholeness. Journeying together. Recognizing our own brokenness. Moving towards wholeness. And then embracing others who need, in some cases, to begin that journey. As we've been blessed, we want to bless others.